This is Building Tomorrow. I'm Paul Matsko, and I've got bots on my brain. Doctors tell me I should survive because these are Twitter bots. Ask most folks what they think of when you say those two words, Twitter bots, and odds are pretty good they'll say something negative about Russian election interference, bots, swarms, trolls, and the like. We don't like bots. But that might be because we only really take notice of bots when they are a problem. Most bots just do their thing. They make our lives a little bit more frictionless, and we never even notice. Our guest today is the creator of one of these bots, and I wanted to talk to him about the rise of the bots and what that means for the future of the internet. Max Sklar is a software engineer at Foursquare, developer of the MarsBot app, and host of the Local Maximum podcast, which really has a lot of great content for folks with an interest in machine learning and, and really in emerging tech more broadly. Welcome to the show, Max. Thank you for having me on. Okay, let's start with MarsBot, this app you developed for Foursquare. What does it do? Well, there are actually two MarsBots. Uh, this is sort of part of our uh, internal labs team, which we have at Foursquare, where uh, we, we sort of get to go off the mainline roadmap of the company, I would say, kind of work on creative projects that sort of showcase the technology of the company. So the first one was developed in 2016, and I did this with uh, a small number of people, including the, the founder of, the, of Foursquare, Dennis Crowley. But that one was um, basically you would walk around your city or your town or whatever, and based on where you go, it would text you information. And so it sounds very simple, but there's a lot of like tech under the hood there that that makes it all work. I mean, first of all, is like kind of the, the core technology we have, which is determining where someone is and when they stop, given their coordinates and all the information on their phone. And then it's also the uh, extensive database of places and what goes on in those places, you know, aggregation of reviews. So, so one of the things that I like is it's sort of it, like if you walk into a cafe, it will immediately text you what the best thing there to order is. And so that's given me some good experiences from time to time. And so that, that was seemed magical uh, at times. And of course, in 2020, now it seems a little less, seems a little tougher to use. Uh, but but uh, <laughs> the, the one we're working on now, which actually was, um, was put off during the lockdown. So we had to, um, you know, we, we originally wanted to launch this in March and now we're launching it, you know, soon, uh, you know, sometime in the next few weeks. But this is sort of MarsBot for AirPods. It's MarsBot 2. And this is kind of an audio version. And we're using a concept called geofences. When somebody walks by a geofence, and in our case, we can tell when somebody walks by a particular storefront in New York City or somewhere else, we can trigger a sound. So some of it is just text-to-speech, like it just tells you some of the same information we normally have as you walk by I don't know, the, the, the deli or whatever. But also, we allow people to leave clips. And so as you're walking through the city, you can hear what everyone else said, or you can leave something and people hear what you said. What are people going to do with it? I'm not so sure yet. I know people are going to get in trouble <laughs> with it. I'm kind of excited to find out how people get in trouble with it. But uh, I, I, I think there'll be some pretty cool creative things coming out of that. I don't know. I think it'd be kind of fun to walk around New York City and have people just kind of randomly ghosts utter swear words as I walk by different kinds of stores. I mean, that, that could happen. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet, but uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think people will do things with sound effects or okay. Um, yeah, uh, sometimes right now people are not sure. They're just like kind of 
still giving you information on what to order, which uh, yeah. is okay, but it's, it's not not as useful when you're just walking by and not actually in there. Right. Is there a, can you customize the sounds for yourself? I mean, like decide which sounds you want to hear and which like categories of sounds you don't? Uh, yeah, there's actually, there's a settings, and that was one of the early pieces of feedback we got. There's a settings panel where you can kind of uh, toggle all the broad categories. You know, it's one of those pages with, um, with like switches on there, uh, toggles on there as, as you know, you, you, I'm sure you know the interface where you can like pick, do you want to hear these, these, these. Right, right. That's cool. I mean, I, I was actually thinking about this the other day. So the town I live in has a um, uh, what they call a, a museum in the streets, and as you walk by uh, historic houses, it you know you can you can I think dial a number. It kind of, museums often have the software too. You know, you have an audio guide, and you can dot put the number in, and it'll give you a little pre-recorded thing about that object. But you can imagine. Like those things are expensive to produce. They're, you know, they take lots of effort and time and money. They're only kind of been used in these very particular uh, non-organic settings. They're, you know, top-down produced as well, not organic, like at a museum in a historical site, that kind of thing. But like I can kind of imagine that technology being used for like, in, you could go on an organic community-driven tour of just a street, walk down the street and you could be hearing things, you know, about this. I mean, right now you're using it for commerce, for driving, you know, people into stores and whatnot, but you could use that same technology for all kinds of cool uh, other applications, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, anyone could record stuff and, you know, we, uh, well, through the app, we only allow five second clips, but, uh, you know, we, we can allow people to make channels and have clips of any length and you could put the geofences anywhere. So, I mean, if somebody wants to do a tour of a street, that should be pretty easy to do. Uh, right now, it's everyone hears everything, which probably in your town in Maine, if somebody uh, puts a, a walking tour on a street, then you turn on Marsbud Audio and it'd be fine. Uh, you wouldn't get too much like extra pollution, but I'm sure in the future we'll have to say, okay, I just want to follow this specific you know, channel right now. Or this specific person. Now, it, I, I watched a presentation you gave. I think it was about Marsbot One, but um, I think it applies to both. And you talked about bots as a huge growth opportunity. And why is that? Where, where are the economic growth gains coming from um, using bots, or, or does it just shift um, growth from other areas? Like, why is it actually growth as opposed to a zero sum transfer? Right. Well, I think that the uh, the one you're talking about is in 2016. And, you know, every once in a while, you know, different um, aspects of the technology, in this case, it's user interface. Uh, but there's a little bit of like AI in there where, you know, Marsbot, you could actually text back and forth a little bit and people do, uh, although it's not really that intelligent. Um, although some are much more intelligent, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but we have some cool things in there. Uh, so, uh, I, I think the conversation at that point uh, and probably still today was really around, you know, where uh, in what case is the phone uh, too heavyweight of a user interface? Um, because it's like I could get things. I, I still feel it now where I can get or I probably feel it even more now where I can get things done on my uh, desktop machine still faster than my phone. Uh, you know, the phones have made great strides, the apps, the interfaces, all that. Certain apps are, are better on the phone, but for the most part, they're equal. They're maybe a little bit less. And it, sometimes it feels a lot, like a lot to open an app uh, and do all these things for something very simple when you could just tell it what you want it to do. 
Um, and I don't think we've really cracked that uh, enough. And so uh, I, I feel like you had this wave of apps in, uh, in, in 2016, 2017, and uh, people are still trying to figure it out. Like, how can we make our lives easier on these phones? I, I think that um, nothing has been a killer app yet, although there has been some pretty impressive kind of bot-like interfaces uh, living within Slack, uh, for example. Mm. Mm. So it's it's uh we're talking about then using I think I saw one of your demonstrations your your smartwatch essentially SMS messages being pushed through a smartwatch so you don't have to pull out your phone and check the store uh, it's just pops right up on your wrist is that the where the the like the ease comes in Sure sure I mean it's sometimes there's ease and sometimes sometimes I don't want things popping up on my watch so it makes it very difficult you know you go back and forth between. Uh, do not disturb and, uh, yes, please disturb, you know, giving me information about what to order when I walk into a place. I love to have that in my watch. I could check it and then boom, I can do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, or, or sometimes texts, sometimes I don't want texts. I, it depends. Back to the big picture here. You said that bots, um, I think in the same presentation, can form emotional connections with users. Um, and yes. I, I think that you're, you're pushing against uh, something with negative cultural connotation. I mean, when most folks hear bot right now, they're likely to think of things like, I don't know, Russian election interference or negative things. Bot yeah. is not a, or even a warm like a phone, fuzzy word. A phone tree or something like that. That's just yeah. a very bad yeah. interface. It's like, I want a real person. Don't give me a bot right on, right. Uh, on, on the helpline. Um, so get, convince a skeptical member of the public that an internet with more bots won't be a bad thing. Well, uh, you know, it's a, it depends what kind of bot you want to build. And it's basically in the hands of the person building it on whether <laughs> that bot is yeah. going to be a good guy or a bad guy. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that if it's sort of a entertainment uh, type of an app with maybe some good information and uh, some uh, good utility uh, where, you know, you, you kind of have fun doing it where, you know, you could say, hey, do X, Y, and Z, and then it does X, Y, and Z, and then it gives you a joke or it gives you a pun or something that's related. Um, you know, it, people would like that. Whereas if it stumbles, it doesn't do that. And then it poorly tries to text you stuff uh, to try to increase quote engagement at random times, then, uh, you know, it might not be so great. So it, it's, it's purely in the hands of the designers, the developers and the consumers to sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> figure out what they're going to st- let into their life and not let into their life. But I know I've been pretty bad with that. Uh, so, um, but, uh, I could do better with, in, 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 I feel like I have more control in terms of what I'm building. Yeah, I mean, I have found it, it's a reminder that I mean, the technologies, the underlying technology you're, you're talking about, are not limited to Mars Bot. Like, I mean, most of our apps send us push notifications, um, and we should, I, I, in theory, want them to be smarter about how they do so, right? Like, I don't want my McDonald's loyalty app to like send me a thing. You want some fries at two a.m., right? I want it at eleven a.m. right before lunch. Um, not that it always seems to get the message. Weird, right. Random things will pop up. Right? Oh, but yeah. like, I, I, I should point out, I have a, uh, if, if you're going back into like old talks and stuff, I have a paper on that in like 2014 on the like timeliness and seasonality of, 
of uh, of places. Actually, no, I, I have a video on that too. From yeah, from, uh, the bur- yeah, the burgers, Cambridge. yeah, the the and uh, oh, I forget what you said. You did burgers and like bagels or donuts yeah. or something. Pan- yeah, yeah, pancakes, that was cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really neat. So you know, I mean, it, it's stuff that we should expect all of our apps to eventually. Are they, I mean, they already are adopting these kinds of technologies and tools. Um, Right. Uh, I I mean, I could give you like a bad example. A few months ago, I signed up for, and I don't know, this is really kind of pushed on us with like the the New York City COVID uh, information line. And so, because, you know, during that time, like uh, April, May, we were all like hungry for as much information as possible and what was going on. But then I just felt like it was recycling the same, you know, empty phrases like stay six feet apart blah 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 every single day it was just texting more like you know like this this like the same like five different like you know uh cliches about the virus and it was just it was so tiring yeah yeah now and eventually you wear your users out and they don't use it when they would actually like it right yeah um now it does seem like twitter in particular has a complicated relationship with bots um they do, you know, periodic sweeps of bot accounts and the like. How do you prevent them, and I guess social media in general, from doing that to apps that are better intentioned? You know, your your good apps. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, let's just say the apps that aren't being created by Russian intelligence agencies. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, the the whole topic of social media censorship is is tough, or, or, or moderation, really. Moderation versus censorship. Is it good or is it bad? Uh, I, we have an, uh, a bot out, um, a, a Twitter bot out for Foursquare called Swarming Now, which is basically showcasing all the places that a lot of people are visiting right now and, and putting up some pictures. And so you see kind of, uh, you know, sometimes you see pictures of people having uh a good time all around the world, which is uh, which is a lot of fun. I mean, in normal times, there'd be a lot of sports events and things like that. And, you know, we've had to do kind of our own moderation, first of all, because sometimes the pictures people put up on Foursquare were not, uh, not very good. <laughs> and so we had to, uh, you know, I, I think we got dinged on Twitter for that. And we had to, um, uh, you know, we had to do, we had to import a library that uh, checks photos for, certain things that you might not want to be posting. Um, and also just the kind of bad photos that aren't going to be photos of the event that's happening or the place that's, that's there. Um, and then we, we sort of have some spam problems where, you know, our numbers are off. And I, I think we've been getting like lots of ridiculous numbers from Saudi Arabia recently where the, the events are correct, but the number of people, like, I don't believe there's a thousand people at a Starbucks and somebody pointed that out. <laughs> and so we've got like, uh, you know, yeah. So um, every once in a while there's sort of a, um, a, a a spam horde. So we have our own internal problems, but then I want Twitter to know that we're like a a a a, a well-meaning bot that has like good information. Like I like following it and seeing, uh, you know, what uh, big events are going on around the world. I, I often call I often call it like the the good news international news network. It's basically all the biggest things happening in the world, but usually tilted towards good news, whereas your normal news station is usually bad news. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's you, you could try to filter out the good stuff from the bad stuff using, uh, using machine learning and using user, uh, you know, user-generated 
signals, um, and that works to an extent, but also the the spammers are it's an advers what I call an adversarial problem, meaning the better you get at it, the better the opponents get at it uh, gaming your system. So they're always going to be whether they're one step ahead or one step behind, they're going to be close enough where you're going to see some problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Marsbot, you know either version and Foursquare too. Lots of information sharing going on. I mean, about your location, about your preferences, the kind of building a little profile of, of users. Um, and, uh, you know, metadata can tell uh, can tell a company a lot about people. And that's a point, you know, folks like Edward Snowden have, uh, you know, whistleblowers like Snowden and others have, have made in the past. Um, I'm not a privacy absolutist by any means. And I think it matters, uh, you know, the difference between opt-in versus, you know, some sort of... Um, you know, difference between opt-in, opt-out, difference between state actors and, you know, private actors, corporate actors, that's meaningful to me. So I, I don't come to it from a, you know, uh, all privacy all the time. Like, it's fine for people to give over their privacy in exchange for services voluntarily. Um, but where do you personally draw the line how much information you like to share with app developers, including apps like your own, uh, and why? Well, I this is kind of uh, the the Foursquare rule, and I'm not an expert on the entire suite of Foursquare apps and what what they do, and so I don't I don't speak for the company, but I will say like there's a specific set of uh, you know um, uh, guidelines as to what's okay and what's not okay, and um, I. I think I usually agree with the decisions they make. I can't say I agree with every decision, but it's like I, for for me, and I think this is this is something that uh, that we do at the company as well. Although you know, don't don't take. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty sure it is. Is that it has to be something that's like useful in like the, that that I'm getting value back from. So mm-hmm. in the example of Foursquare, it's okay. I am. It's using this information to build a profile of me, and then it's going to use it to give me recommendations. Um, and you know, so location apps, well, location permissions. Well, it makes sense to give location permissions to an app that um, you know gives you suggestions or does maps or something like that. Um, so, first, if an app is asking for all sorts of permissions that it doesn't need, that's kind of a that's kind of a red flag uh, sometimes. Um, how I feel about ads. I mean, sometimes some people don't like having, you know, targeted advertising to them. I, that is something that I don't mind. I feel like there should just be, uh, you know, the ability to opt out of that. Uh, but it's, uh, to me, that's not a big, um, a big kind of privacy concern given, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all going to be, uh, like, it, I don't feel like the ads are going to come back to hurt me in any way. It's just giving me better, better things. But one thing I really care about, and this is something that that is, you know, in terms of policy, is is encryption and making sure that you know uh, companies and, and apps can appropriately encrypt their data and not, you know, have it, uh, you know, not have the government, you know, say, oh, you can only use a weaker form of encryption. I know that was something that. That, that keeps coming up. It seems like governments around the world want to do this because they want to be able to get into things if they have to, but that makes everything less secure down the line. And that makes, um, you know, that makes <laughs> all the information that you upload to the cloud less secure. And uh, it's, I, I think that's a, that's a problem.
I think we all kind of get on a basic human level. If a stranger came up to you as you're walking down the sidewalk in New York City, um, and let's just we'll pause it in a non-threatening kind of way. So you're not worried about you're about to be mugged. So a stranger comes up to you and says, hey, and you can tell they're from out of the city. You know, they got an I love New York T-shirt on and, uh, you know, a Lady Liberty foam headband or whatever. Right. You know, they're, they're out. They're an outsider a tourist. Um, and they say, hey, could you tell me uh, where's the nearest coffee shop uh, or is there a coffee shop you like in the area? You know, you would feel some kind of obligation just on a human level uh, to give them a good answer. I mean, you could lie sure. to them for fun and, and get, send them somewhere terrible, uh, but you would, I mean, you, you kind of have an ethical human obligation to give that information to them to make their life, their life better. You, you want people um, to have a good impression. You don't want people to go home and say, Oh, these New Yorkers, they're even worse than I heard about. You know? Yeah. Yeah, right. And so, you know, out of pride, out of shared humanity, whatever it is, most of the time, most of us do that. We we give away information to make other other people's lives better. Does that ethical obligation uh, or neighborly obligation of some kind, does that extend to the digital space? I mean, do you see like an ethical obligation to share our information um, with, you know, not with Foursquare in particular, but with apps and, and like Foursquare, like Google Maps, like wherever? Um should we think of that as uh, putting some sort of obligation on us? Oh, interesting. So I, I thought you were going to go in a different direction with that question, which is uh, you know the, the ethical obligation in terms of the people who are creating the apps, because that that I totally agree with. Yeah, I don't. I think we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Yeah. We spend less time thinking about this. Is the, I don't yeah. think. No, you know what? I don't. My initial reaction to that is to say, no, I don't really feel that we have an obligation to, you know, uh, give data to apps or to contribute to kind of an online community. I mean, I guess if you make extensive use of something, it's nice to to give back. But I feel like that 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 goes down too much of a slippery slope for me where you have all of these apps demanding your time and attention and input. And it's like, you've got to be able to say, um, you know, you, you've got to be able to draw the line at some point. I mean, it, right. it's, it's like saying in Times Square, do you have to give a coffee recommendation to every single person that you see? Uh, it, you, it would just drive you crazy. I mean, and yeah. that's why we ignore a lot of the people on the street sometimes, <laughs> because otherwise I'd be, you know, I wouldn't, it would take me an hour just to get from point A to point B yeah. as everybody. Yeah. I, I always, I was on the street the other day and I know that somebody said, um, you know, uh, hello. And so I said, hello. So they could be asking me for directions or something. And then they said, can I ask you a question? That's when I know run. If there are two yeah. introductions, there is nothing good that can come out of that conversation. <laughs> Were they also wearing like a white shirt and a black tie or? <laughs> no, no, it was just, you know, it was just a kind of a random person on the street. Yeah, but yeah. I, I know I, I uh, look living here. Like I, I, I've seen that before. I know that's like yeah. a whole story and it's, uh, it's sometime in the end of it. There's like uh, some, some convoluted reason why, the money in my pocket has to go in his pocket. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, so it's interesting. I mean, this is you know sometimes. But I, have I to feel talk like hey, now you point about it. Like sometimes apps and 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 people online do the same exact thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because people can weaponize that that 
what whether or not people should feel it, people do feel some sense of obligation to uh, be hospitable. I mean, you you could have you could just always ignore whenever someone says hello. Um, but at some point, you said hello because you're like, well, I guess I kind of I kind of owe it to respond the way I was. You know, they said hello to me. I should say hello back, right? Uh, for right. you know, for, for whatever reason. Um, and people weaponize that sense of obligation to you know try to extract money or oh, I, or I've seen that proselytize while, while traveling yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah, I do think people have an obligation to kind of like when they post stuff on Twitter or whatever to not be I don't know not ruin someone's day. Uh, all the time. So I, you know, that seems to be what 90% of posting is about these days. Anyway, so. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. Think about the impact on others. So it's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's always a good rule of thumb. Um, okay. So you, I, one last thing here while we're talking about bots and the like, uh, you have a patent on some of the technology and it's the, the from what I can tell it's, it's called system and method for providing recommendations with a location based service. Oh, what what makes, yeah, what makes wow. that method so different from other methods? Uh, I mean, because you have to have a difference from something else. I'm impressed. Else. You're going back into my Google Scholar. Oh, I'm digging in, man. At, yeah. So <laughs> that is uh, – so uh, there are two patents that uh, we have with Foursquare. One is not out yet, but it's related to attribution, which was an interesting product that I worked on uh, a couple of years ago. That The one that you mentioned is for – just the just the basic recommender system back when Foursquare was a city guide, it was a single app, and um, th this is like 2011, 2012, where actually using people's location data, and, uh, or sorry, using people's location and using their check-ins, which at the time we only knew someone's location if they physically opened the app and checked in and shared with their friends, but now it's kind of more. Um, you know, it, it, it's more automatic, but um, that was all kind of brand new. I mean, the smartphone had only been out for a few years. And so there's a patent related to that. The the, the actual like patent law part of the patent, I don't under, like I, I've gotten these things in the mail where, you know, that they interview me and then they have a patent and then I get the patent in the mail and this, here's your invention. And I read it. I have no idea what I invented. <laughs> like I have no idea what this, uh, what this, uh, what this, patent lawyer language is, is all about, but, uh, I, I understand how it works. So yeah, but that, that was when I, it, it feels almost obvious now to have kind of location based context in all of your apps, but that was not so obvious back in 2011, 2012, or it was becoming more obvious, but it was, there was a lot of the, the way I understand patents work is like, you have to have like some novel take on something. And so there was a lot of kind of brand new territory uh, to cover there. And so I, the, that, that, that's kind of the extent of my knowledge of patent law, but that's sort of what I feel like is going on there. It doesn't sound like it played a necessarily huge role in driving what you do. Um, I mean, do, do you have any opinions about the state of tech patent law? Um, yeah. I mean, so it's everybody, I mean, I, everybody I talk to in tech hates the patent trolls where it's like, you know, somebody, I, I think somebody came along once and said, Oh, I have like a, uh, I have a, I have a patent on all digital commerce. So, you know, here's my lawyer, give me all your money. And they shake people down. Uh, so that's certainly not good. I feel like companies have these patents for the purpose of, 
uh, you know, for the purpose for defensive purposes, so that you know, if you have a patent on something, then um, somebody else with a patent on something can't just come along and claim all the rights, and so you have to kind of work out some deal. Um, but it's it's clearly broken. It's not the kind of thing where like only. Uh, you know, only cer- certain people are, like, you know, it's not the kind of thing where like only uh, people who are against all IP, like, you know, certain libertarians are, are think there's a problem. I think everybody thinks that there's some kind of problem with the patent system right now. Uh, so, um, but uh, yeah, I, I can't say I have personal experiences dealing with uh, this situation, but I, you know, as a podcaster, I'm worried about, you know, who can come along and say, oh, you copyright this or this person didn't say it's okay for that. Even though I have like a small podcast, it's, you know, it's, uh, I do it, you know, I, I do it as a, as a labor of love. I do it for free. I give people information for free. I, uh, don't make very much off of it right now. And so it's like, you know, huge liability with very little upside. That seems wrong. Yeah. Yeah, we, we want to encourage more uh, more such projects, right? Not not discourage them. Um, well, I, the, the one example that comes to mind as you were talking is uh, there was a guy who – a patent troll basically who um, patented the button, uh, the buy – like the buy now button on – and everyone has some version of the buy now button. Like just click the button and boom, it goes to – you know, pays with your – pre-approved payment card it goes to your default address um but someone had filed a patent not the person who actually as i recall um uh who actually designed any of those systems they were not an engineer it was just some lawyer said oh that's patentable i'll file a patent for that idea and goes around and collects rents off of you know companies that have a buy it now button so which which is not the point the point is to encourage actual innovation right um yeah yeah, it's yeah. it's it, it's sad when you see something like that. You feel like, um, you know, you feel like someone's like. There are some people who are trying to build stuff and, in some ways, improve the state of the world. Not, not always successful, but at least trying. And then there's someone who's trying to like kind of crib off that, and it, it's sort of like. Um, and and I, a lot of these patent trolls have their own. Like, if you read some of their legal documents, they have their own. Like, well, we're the ones encouraging, you know, innovation because we're upholding <laughs> yeah. the patent law. It's like, ugh. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm I, I'm someone who you know. Um, I think uh, Tyler Cowen, the economist, uh, Marginal Revolution website has a he has a nice shorthand where it's like you you want some you need some kind of patent system to encourage uh, that you know at some point. If it's if there's no patent system at all, it discourages innovation because people are always worried. They don't want to share ideas because they might get stolen. Um, but if you have too much, if you have too strong of a patent system, uh, it, it also discourages innovation. So there's like a sweet spot in the curve. And I don't think I've interviewed anyone who thinks we're at the sweet spot. <laughs> you know, yeah. Everyone recognizes that something's wrong. And usually that they're, you know, and in this case, too, with the Internet, it the whole process. I mean, you filed for that patent. I'm sure it was years before it was approved. Yeah, I mean that's Foursquare did that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and like in in emerging tech, years is uh, you know I mean might as well be I mean, an app can be dead in years. I mean they don't move in that right. time frame. Right, yeah. but but the benefit they get from that is that it, it's it's so first of all like as soon as you kind of file for it, you use you, you start the clock. So even if it's not approved, uh, you know you you still have some protections as soon as you file for it i I believe and um yeah so uh, the idea is 
I think for a lot of these companies to build up a series of patents, uh, kind of a library of patents over time. Why don't we turn now to uh, you, you referenced it a few times um, as we were talking about bots. Uh, I know it's something you spend a lot of time talking about on the podcast. I listened to a few episodes um, about it. Uh, but machine learning, you're a machine learning specialist. Um, that means something uh, to, to me when I say it, but I'm not sure for a non-technical audience, those in our audience who um, this might be the first time they've they've actually heard someone from that field. Um, what is machine learning for an, in a non-technical sense? Okay. So let me, I've, I've tried to explain this a bunch of times on podcasts. Let me, let me try my best every time it comes out a little differently, but you know, um, well, just think about what learning is uh, before we talk about machines. Learning um, implies that you're just getting better over time by, you know, receiving new data. I guess that would be in in in, in computer speak. But uh, in non-computer speak, it's like you know, you learn through experience, you learn through information, lessons. Um, uh, so sometimes it's more just experience, trial and error. Sometimes it's more you know, book learning and actually understanding what's going on. But just learning implies that you're going to be getting better and better at something over time. Um, and understanding more and more over time in some cases, um, not in all cases. So machine learning is just to try to automate that process. So it's basically building software that gets better over time as it gets more experience, which in the language of software means gets more data. Um, and so uh, that's that's sort of the broad uh, that, that's sort of the broad goal of machine learning. Uh, the language of machine learning is statistics, um, probability, uh, more, more precisely. Uh, I, I use Bayesian probability theory a lot uh, on the show. It's sort of, I, I kind of evangelize that as, um, as sort of the basis for how we know what's true and what's not true or what's more likely to be true and what's less likely to be true. Uh, because, the, um, the, the, the language of probability, or particularly Bayesian inference, is the idea that you have some set of options that you're unsure about which is the right one and which is not the right one. And then as you get more information, you update that over time. You get better and better. And so Bayesian inference provides the equations for that. And so that is a great way, in my opinion, to approach machine learning. Um, and so there's a bunch of different kind of sub uh, subtasks that are usually involved in machine learning, kind of an important, I'm not going to go through all of them now. I'm not going to give it the whole course, but I think an important one to know is like your basic supervised learning where you're basically trying to, uh, like classify something or pick a number. So, uh, you know, for example, if I see a tweet or an email, I want to classify it as spam or not spam. That would be a very simple kind of machine learning algorithm. Or if I get information on a piece of real estate or a house and I know, uh, you know, its location, its, you know, square footage, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff, I want to be able to output the, uh, you know, the, the, the price that I think it's going to go for. Um, so, uh, and then it, I want to get better at that over time as, as I get, uh, you know, as I uh, receive information about that market. And so all of that kind of falls under the purview of machine learning. In fact, those two examples are actually, uh, you know, supervised learning because that's where you're actually trying to learn a specific uh, value. Mm. And I think we get that intuitively. The um, 
uh, and even in a pre-digital world, you know, folks were familiar with weather forecasts. Uh, it's a thing we like we like to complain about, but you know, we all get this is a fundamentally unstable um, thing, right? Lots of variables go into whether it's going to rain at 12 p.m. tomorrow, uh, and so you have to deal with it in probability. So you get a pers- I think that's probably the way in which most non-technical folks interact with probability chances is what are the odds it's going to rain is it 30 percent chance versus 70 percent chance and i think we get intuitively that as you get more information as you get closer to the event your information is more reliable you have more of it and uh it's you know it's less in the future so that your 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 specificity uh can go up the closer you get to the event so you know I, uh, applying that to machine learning i think is um in that you know that that some of the earliest machine learning actually i think probably was done by the uh the national weather service by you know, NOAA and and um back you know back before it had been you know rolled out for consumer internet purposes over the last you know 10 20 years yeah oh well, that's that's interesting um I, I i should look into that i haven't looked into that i know some of the earliest examples of bayesian inference which, are, which i consider kind of machine learning or i mean uh, you know first of all the uh uh, if you saw Imitation Game, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bletchley Park with uh, Alan Turing and, and all that um, kind of uh, cracking the, the German codes in World War II, I mean, that is, you know, that was a, a, could be seen as like kind of a giant Bayesian inference engine trying to figure out, you know, what the setting of these machines are uh, to, <laughs> you know, and then, um, you know, it it's... It, you know, it's kind of related to actu- actuaries and insurance and it, a, a lot of different fields. But, um, you know, when I'm working with machine learning now, it's usually, uh, well, kind of on the recommender system side or the, you know, try to discriminate between data side or, you know, a bunch yeah. of different things. And here I was getting all excited that, you know, your work in machine learning was going to defeat the Nazis. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> um, no, no. So, you know, I have read. You know, you have to feed data into uh, to train um, to train the machines. I mean, machine learning needs data sets, and so you yes. need. Um, and the more data, as you go from no data to more data, that's that's better. You get more accurate. You get better probabilities. Um, but I have read there are sharply diminishing returns on the size of a data set once you get past a certain point. Uh, is that yes. correct? And why or why not? So um, the answer is that it depends. Um, I, so I could give you a, a very simple statistical algorithm. This is so simple that people usually don't consider it machine learning, but it's, you know, machine learning is just a more complicated version of that. But I'm sure you've seen like, um, you know, in, in school, probably in high school, like a linear regression, like a line of best fit. Um, a good example is if I have, uh, you know, a bunch of points on a graph of uh, people's heights and weights in a class, and then I could fit a line to that data, um, assuming that it's it's linear data. Um, at some point, you get a line that's as good as it's going to be, and then getting more data is not going to um, is not going to improve the kind of the slope and location of that line because there's there's only two there's only like two parameters in that there's only like the the, the slope of the line and the the intercept of the line so at some point you you kind of learn where it is and then you're sort of done but the more complicated of a model that you have uh the more um the more well you you can overfit so 
for example, instead of a line, let's say you're, you allow some like crazy polynomial curve and then it goes up and down and up and down and tries to hit every single point that you've graphed. Uh, but it actually doesn't tell you anything about the new points that's coming in. It doesn't generalize. You just kind of overfit. You kind of uh, memorize the data, essentially, is what it's doing. It's not really um, telling you anything about future data that's coming in. So that's that's a problem when you have uh, more complicated models. And so, uh, you know, there, there are ways to fix that. One of them is to just get a lot more data. Uh, and so... Sometimes you can wring more information out of more data by making a more complicated model if you can kind of anticipate where the, uh, you know, where the complexity is going to give you a better result. And in some cases you can, and in some, some cases you, you, you can't. Like a lot of times in marketing data, um, you know, uh, people try to do things very complex um, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, like what, you know, like how to, so, uh, one example of something that, that is complex is like image recognition. Um, because the type of complexity is really, is really crazy where you have like, you know, um, different levels of abstraction as you zoom out, like, you know, edges and crosses and swirls to, oh, that's a nose, that's a mouth, that's a face, you know, oh, that's a, that's a, one particular person that's my friend you know so um that th those models uh can be very complicated but some sometimes things like marketing data where you have like age gender demographics things like that there's not there's only so much that you could do with it and so the more data you get might not be as useful so it, it really depends on the situation and what you're trying to learn I'm always um, struck by by how that that question of what's complicated and simple is not always what people intu intuitively, non-specialists intuitively find simple or complex. It's like a really complex is you know the the meme is it a muffin or a chihuahua? Um, image recognition is it a hot dog or someone's knees? That's really complex, but we don't think of that as complex. Right. It's it's very simple for humans because. Are you know? I think a majority of our brain is actually uh, is actually dedicated to understanding images and doing image recognition. So we're really good at it. We can look at something and immediately tell what it is. Machines have become uh, pretty good at it as well. Not as good as us, but it's actually very complicated to uh, to write those uh, to write those algorithms. Um, so my former professor at NYU, uh, Jan LeCun developed, you know, convolutional neural nets and he's now at Facebook and that's sort of a big algorithm in terms of image recognition. And now we have, you know, people developing like training algorithms on really a crazy number of machines, crazy number of parameters, um, for things like self-driving cars, and stuff like that, where it's, um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 a very hard problem. But if you think about it, if you think about it a little more deeply, it is very complex because what's an image really, uh, as far as the computer is concerned? The, an image is just a matrix of numbers. Each number represents a color, right? So how do you turn a matrix of? I could see a, a cat and say cat, but how do you take a matrix of numbers and say cat? Uh, by doing some calculation on those numbers, it seems it almost seems like an impossible problem when you first look at it. Yeah, it's crazy we can do it at all. Not, yeah. not that we do it poorly. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so, what's the relationship then between? You know, so, we've been talking machine learning, 
And we know that – I think uh, all of our listeners will know that somehow related to artificial intelligence. What is that relationship? Yeah, so I th- – uh, um, so my view is that uh, – the way I've used the terms is that artificial intelligence is kind of a uh, – is a broader term than machine learning um, where – AI, AI is a very amorphous term in, in computer science because AI is sort of anything that is intelligent. And what is intelligence? Uh, well, I've seen a number of definitions, but one is like the ability to, um, the ability to perform well in a variety of different circumstances. So you have narrow AI where it's like, I'm good at one thing, but it's still I, I could still get lots of instances of that one thing. So, for example, if I'm good at telling what email is spam, um, I, I could still be I could still be a good example of AI if I can kind of hit at all those different examples of spam. But it's still narrow AI. And then there's kind of general AI, which is uh, you know something that uh, is kind of as, as smart as a person. We could say you could kind of reason with it. You can kind of speak to it, and it could learn a lot of different things. And so. Right now, we're only at narrow, and we will be for quite some time, although we're, we're, we're widening it a little bit. But I think any – look, if you think about it, like if you want to build something that's intelligent, um, machine learning almost certainly has to be involved in this day and age. It's very difficult to build something like at the forefront of AI. Um, I haven't seen an example where you're not using some type of machine learning because otherwise you're left with something like – um, you know, like expert systems and decision trees and something that maybe seems smart, but really isn't under the hood. Uh, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> one definition I, I've heard of AI is just stuff that uh, computer scientists haven't figured out yet. Is, <laughs> you know, like once it's, uh, once I think that, that this has been said in like, you know, decades ago where it's, once someone figures it out, it's not considered AI anymore. Like, yeah, you know, maybe 50 years ago, playing tic-tac-toe would be considered AI, and now it's just no, it's just that's just code that I wrote. You know, as a that, yeah, that yeah. A, a undergrad can write. It's a it's a moving uh, moving bar, yeah, for sure. Um, and we've had we've had episodes on the show. We've had some guests who kind of are all across the range when it comes to like AI pessimism versus optimism. Um, in fact, you know, one of our guests, they're not. It's not entirely clear. Uh, it's not not everyone agrees on what it means, uh, what artificial intelligence means, and uh, or, or even really what consciousness is. Like, it, right. it, it's one thing to assume that getting faster and better at recognizing patterns uh, is right. that no, the no, same. I haven't used the word consciousness this whole time, so right. <laughs> we can talk about and that. So that's not you know it's not clear what exactly we're talking about between uh, pattern recognition, artificial intelligence, and consciousness. And we do sometimes it's 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 easy to kind of lump those things together and not tease them out. Um, uh, and again, big, that's a big conversation. It, so by some definitions, uh, if if you know there are people who don't think consciousness can be replicated, there are some who do. Uh, and if you count artificial intelligence as true consciousness a machine becoming conscious or full artificial intelligence um then that it's a you know whether or not you'll be able to achieve that is unclear so there are people who are optimistic that we'll get there that we'll get to a kind of very full robust ai um that becomes truly conscious there are those who don't there's also kind of a related question which is if we can get to a super 
intelligent, uh, uh, super AI. We, you know, we achieve the, the singularity, which, you know, that can be either a very bad or a very good thing. So there's all these different, um, I think, feelings about what the future of artificial intelligence looks like, optimistic versus pessimistic. Where would you place yourself on that spectrum? And how would you apply that to some of these uh, hot button questions in the AI industry? Uh, so I, I would place myself at being kind of cautiously optimistic, um, you know, in, in following kind of the AI news over the years and the way the media portrays it. There, there could be there are some cases of, you know, like like overhype all the time. Uh, so that does happen. But it is pretty powerful technology. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in it. And um, I think it could and it has solved a lot of really tough problems. It's made a lot of things that you wouldn't even think of, like a lot more efficient. And so um, I think it's been uh, a huge plus um, in the world, although there have been you know, some, some downsides as well. Um, so let's kind of take some of these things one at a time. It's the, the, I haven't addressed the consciousness. I've addressed the consciousness issue a little bit on the show, but not a whole episode for it. I think... Like consciousness and intelligence, I sort of put in two different buckets. I don't think we really understand what consciousness is. And so I think it's possibly could be intelligent, but not conscious. And the other way around, probably too. Uh, but I don't think I haven't seen like a definition or explanation of consciousness that I've been happy where, oh, the person who's explaining it to me really understands it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, and I, I also talk about subjectivity, whereas I feel like as humans, we have an, a subjective experience of the world. Like we're experiencing the world, whereas a uh, machine is not actually experiencing the world. It's just things are just happening internally. There are probably people who philosophically believe, oh, no, that's just an illusion. We don't, I don't, I don't buy that. I'm, I'm having trouble buying that. I, you know, that, that could be a whole philosophical discussion in, in its own right. Um, but in terms of just like the, the practical applications of AI, I mean, if you look at things, like I'm always interested in seeing kind of, you know, getting out of the city a little bit and seeing, oh, like AI and farming, like how much, you know, like there are, uh, this, this is a while ago, but I, I, I saw, you know, some startups that were kind of taking pictures of all the crops and immediately determining where the problems are and wh which needed which type of uh, wh which type of uh, uh, intervention and so on and so forth. And kind of there's AI in education and healthcare. And I want to, you know, I I, I want sort of a um, I, I want a lot more statistical inference in healthcare. I feel like a lot of the times when I go to the doctor, it's sort of like guesswork still, um, which blows my mind. I mean, I know that there's a lot of, you know, studies underlying everything, and the, but I, I feel like, um, you know, I feel like I should type in my, my symptoms into a box and uh, it should know me and could give me like a bunch of percentages and what may or may not be wrong. And it, it still shocks me that there's like nothing that does, even like, um, even like basic information about, you know, about certain things is very hard to come by. Uh, so uh, I, I think that, um, so I, th there's a lot of promise of this technology that I'm really excited about. Not to mention like self-driving cars, which I think, uh, which I think will, you know, change the world for the better. Not everyone agrees with me, but I just feel that, you know, being able to 
improve human mobility to that extent uh, will just make people a lot more free to do things in their lives and you know in- encourage uh, people um, interacting with each other more in- increase the number of potential lifestyles that people might have um, and just make the world a lot more efficient um, in a lot of ways um, so let's I mean we could we could explore some downsides too I mean certainly, Loss of privacy is a downside. I mean, even if you think something is private, it could be easy to use machine learning as a kind of piece together, you know, what's, um, you know, what's going on. Like, um, you know, uh, you can use machine learning to kind of try to detect who wrote what based on like the patterns of writing. Uh, so that, um, yeah, that, that, that alone, there, there's a lot that, uh, that, that we can watch out for there. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, as you were talking about the medical example, I was put in mind of uh, the the forms of learning that doctors uh, utilize when they're trying to diagnose you are variations of everything we've been discussing. I mean, they, they, sometimes they use a, a decision tree process. You know, do you have this symptom? Yes. Then go to this branch. Do you have this system? No. Okay, then it goes to this branch and you just follow that little decision tree down and bam, here's your diagnosis. Um, Or they do a lot of pattern recognition, um, you know, uh, uh, chihuahua or a muffin type stuff. I I am I have looked at tens of thousands of, you know, heart, uh, what do you call echo echocardiograms or, you know, MRIs. And I've looked at so many that I can very quickly identify something irregular, a tumor or a, you know, a growth or a mass or something. Um, that's really just, the, I mean, those are things that you would expect someday, even if they are somewhat still hit or miss now. I know there are some projects to use machine learning to look at uh, scans. I forget which type, but to look at some of these medical scans and try to outperform doctors. And it's been... Uh, mixed results, as, as I recall. Yeah. But like you would think those are things machines can do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if if I remember correctly, kind of the radiology stuff was was doing pretty well. And some of some some of the kind of cancer detection algorithms as image recognition was doing pretty well. But I'd have to look at the specific examples. One of the fun episodes that we did was one on we saw an article on smart toilets, which was um, I I. I I like the idea, but the way that this, uh, the way that they described how this particular solution worked <laughs> sounded totally impractical. Um, okay. you know, but I like the idea that you have something in your house and it tells you, Hey, you know, uh, something's wrong with you. Go get yeah. it checked out. And then you don't even have to think about it. Well, they're using that for, um, I forget which university it was. I just saw an article, uh, feeling like Syracuse, but I forget who it is, which some university is they're checking the sewer mains for evidence of COVID. And so what they can do is rather than having to very expensively test every student multiple times a week, they test the sewer mains of every, every building on campus. Uh, so every dorm in, in particular to see if they're getting evidence from, you know, from the, their sewage that they have COVID in their system and where they detect it, then they can like shut down that dorm and test th- just those students multiple times for the next two weeks or something. So I thought it's very clever because essentially we're talking about, except rather than testing it at the toilet, you're testing it at the, you know, the sewer junction pipe. Yeah. But that we should do more of that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I mean now with, uh, you know, over the last six months, I don't know 
what people are thinking in terms of beating this virus. It doesn't seem to be science-based at all or logic-based at all. It's almost like just do something. So I I don't know how to get – there has to be kind of a – I don't know if we're ever going to get a social change where people are going to kind of uh, be more data-driven in the way they kind of run their own lives and in the way that they uh, you run policy. It, it almost sounds like too much to ask for after my most recent experiences. Uh, on the on the topic of the uh, of the of COVID and New York City, um, so I we did an episode a couple episodes back about deurbanization, and New York City was the the example we talked about because the, the number I saw was that in two weeks in March the population in New York City decreased by five percent as people fled and you know, a lot of like Wall Street financial industry type folks who, you know, they went out to the summer home in New Hampshire or Maine or whatever and the like. And of course there's lots of downstream effects from that. Like uh, they're at kind of the top of the economic pyramid. And so if they spend less on, you know, they're not going into the office as much anymore. Uh, that means they're not going out to eat for lunch. We, we have as like much a 200 anymore. person and, office at, at Foursquare and I go and I'm like the only one there. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you've seen – I mean what do you think about this whole de-urban – and there's been backlash against that. I mean Jerry Seinfeld was defending you know, New York is always going to be New York and whatnot. Uh, as someone right. in First, New York uh, City – James Altucher was, wrote the original article. Yeah, yeah, James Altucher. So like what, as someone on the ground, what, what's your impression of this conversation? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because we do prediction panels on the, uh, on the local maximum every, every year or so. I have, I have like a tech retreat which just turned out to be a way – uh, to kind of get away with my friends and I have them do predictions. And so we were talking about this stuff way back in 2018 where it was like, okay, we're going to have hopefully improved transportation. I mean, some people say that transportation hasn't improved very much over the previous decade, but if we do ever get to something, maybe not true self-driving cars, but something close to it, then um, certainly the outer suburbs, what I, I kind of call, I don't know, there's various names for them, uh, become more, uh, you know, become more uh, appealing. And if, you know, more access to broadband, more, um, you know, better software, uh, better, better hardware to work remotely, okay, that makes those areas more appealing. Um, but I, at the time, kind of saw it as kind of a slow process. And, it i i still feel like there is a good reason to have a city i mean there's you know per i mean maybe not right now you know i feel like right now in new york you kind of get all the downsides with without much of the upsides but the upsides used to be you know you could meet with all sorts of different interesting people every day and there's a lot more that you do in person than over zoom over zoom you don't really have uh the kind of in-depth conversations that you want to have you sort of you get distracted by stuff in your house and you don't have sort of the accidental you know uh crosstalk that you would otherwise get and i i think that there are some companies that are going to be better remote or at least in smaller teams remote and then some companies find, will find that they're better off with um with uh, everyone being in the same place that, that that includes like a lot of creative companies or a lot of companies where you have to share ideas uh, very rapidly and very haphazardly is actually better. And so there, there's, there'll sort of be a great 
kind of switch where there'll be people coming in and there'll be people coming out. So if the cities, um, if the cities handle this correctly, they can kind of sort of rebrand and say, okay, we're losing some companies here, but maybe we can gain X, Y, and Z from the resources that are now available uh, if we uh, if we make these changes. So I don't, I, I'm not very optimistic about the leadership in New York City right now, but you know, so things change. So maybe we'll be able yeah. to change that uh, change yeah. that soon. Now I, I did find it fascinating. Um, I just saw another um, uh, uh, you know visualizations of a, of, of of a data set um, that the you know machine machine learning um, and tracking people's behavior through the pandemic has given us information that would have been kind of unthinkable even just a few years ago. So I'm, I'm talking here about how uh, early on in the virus, uh, we were able to assess changing consumer behavior in response to the virus by doing things like tracking phone locations and restaurant check-in data. I think OpenTable published some data early on where you could see that people responded to the virus before they were told they had to. Sure. Right? The, the, I, I the, looked there at some of that a, data. I, I actually pulled some Foursquare data too as well. Yeah. Uh, so. yeah. Maybe actually I saw the update from you. I'm not sure. Um, and like we've now seen that even when they relax the shutdowns, like it doesn't track with the official stuff. Basically consumers shut down before they were told to shut down. And sometimes they've actually relaxed their, you know, their behavior before they were told they could. And you can really see that in the data. Did, did anything about that surprise you as someone working in the field? Uh, you know, not really. When I pulled some data, I found pretty much what I would have expected. You know, it took a few weeks to get people uh, to really stop moving, um, which is, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that's people making rational decisions. I think that was just, um, you know, fear and <laughs> propaganda spreading. Um, and I'm not saying it, it would, it certainly wasn't irrational to be inside in New York in March and April. Uh, and then we kind of slowly start coming back, but uh, some of that seasonal and yeah, a lot of people are still not here. It's, it's, if you look at the data, there's nothing kind of surprising about what I've, I've seen. Um, it's just, it's, I think the open question is, how do you get people to come back uh, if, if you decide it's, it's time to come back? I feel like uh, at some point, you just have to let people make their own decisions. And then uh, maybe, uh, you know, maybe uh, there'll be kind of a small group of people who are, are you know, the, the, it'll be like anything where there are early adopters who come into the city and say, hey, the city as it is, in September 2020, this is good. This I could make good use of this for whatever reason. I mean, think about it. I don't know. There's, it's very easy to rent an apartment here right now. Uh, things are pretty much empty. You don't really have the the bar and and rest kind of the restaurant scene outside for another couple months. Uh, but um, I don't know. A, a lot of empty space, but a lot of a lot of you know a lot of the, the city as well, like empty space in terms of not a lot of people, but a lot of right, stuff right. here as well. So yeah. I don't know. It's find the people who can make good use of that is I'm just, this is kind of stream of consciousness, but um, yeah, this, yeah. There's people who are going to see that as a moment of opportunity. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I hope so. I'm, I'm sure there are people who are, uh, I, now, I'm, I'm kind of sick of it. I'm kind of, I, I want to see people again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's, I mean, it's got, that's why people, you don't move to New York city, uh, voluntarily, if uh, you're not at some level 
a social you like people around <laughs> you know it, it's or i guess you, you might have to but uh that's why people move to maine not they, they don't move to maine for the social life they, <laughs> they yeah to new york city for that. I, I feel like i would if i lived in maine it would be less um it would be less it, it wouldn't be sad not to see as many people because you'd be out in nature and you'd be and there'd be all sorts of things that you can do so it's um it's it's it gets really sad in the city when you kind of can't see anyone. I mean, I, I had an apartment in Brooklyn that I moved out of. I was there for six years and, um, it, it was, it's, it's a nice kind of studio apartment, but I, I didn't realize I'd have to basically be in that one room for, uh, <laughs> for, you know, a month when I moved in there. Yeah. There was a great article. I, I forget where now, but, uh, where they talked about how, architects are starting to rethink a lot of stuff. I mean, obviously the open office is a is an easy one. You don't want an off open office plan if you want people to be in cubicles so they're safe from, you know, contagion spread. So they're starting to rethink stuff like that. But the other one was was houses, right? Like uh, the open concept floor plan has been hot for decades now. And uh, but if everyone's at home all the time, the kids are over there doing remote learning, you know, both parents are are working remotely, trying to do Zoom conferences, and you've got an open concept set up uh, very quickly, then the noise becomes a factor, people just drive each other crazy. Uh, so yeah, I mean, being in, stuck in one one studio room is uh, is rough for months. Yeah, after, month I'm just month. sort of trying to set up to have a, a setup in my life eventually where I have like, you know, enough space to do everything kind of office space in the house, everything. But like, you know, it's, it's tough to have the means to, to do that. You know, not, not everyone will be able to do that. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, uh, that's interesting. I think also in terms of, I like the compromise, which I kind of wanted before this happened, where you can work from home one or two days a week. That way you're kind of set up to work from home. Uh, is kind of expected. Uh, people are not going to come in sick. I mean, I remember, well, I remember one situation in particular, like in the last decade where I kind of felt pressured to come in to a, a company when I was sick. Uh, and I look back at that now, I'm like, oh, it's so ridiculous. But uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully those norms will change. And even, yeah. I mean, it'd be great, even after we don't all have to wear masks, if people who are uh, sick and symptomatic wear masks. That would be a, like in Japan, people who are coughing feel obligated to wear a mask just socially. I mean, uh, if we can keep some little bits and pieces of that, that would probably be salutary. But yeah, um, and in that case, like if everyone's set up to work from home, uh, even if it's not, you know, as good five days a week, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, then, then if you get sick, okay, no problem. I'll just work from home every day this week. You know, it's all right. That, that flexibility. Flexibility would be good. Well, uh, before before I let you go, um, Max, are there any new projects you'd like to plug? Obviously, we, our listeners should listen to uh, the local Maximum podcast when they get a chance. Is there anything else you'd like to mention? Yeah. So obviously, you know, Marsbot for AirPods. I don't know when that's going to drop. We've been trying to launch this for <laughs> six months now, but I think we'll get that soon. So that's something to play around with. But definitely check out the local Maximum on your podcast app. And also kind of the website is localmaxradio.com. I've been adding a lot of new stuff to the website. Uh, I've been adding a few kind of articles under under questions about 
uh, you know, what is machine learning? What is a local maximum? So if you're interested in kind of learning about that stuff, that's a good place to go to. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can search for, whether it's guests. And I, I just cover a wide range of topics. It's not just tight. Sometimes it's mathematics. Sometimes it's uh, low level technology. Sometimes it's, you know, just talking about emerging technology with people. Sometimes I'll just talk about current events and, and things like that. So it's, uh, it's, if you enjoyed hearing from me today, if you want to hear a little more, uh, <laughs> check out the local maximum, go to localmaxradio.com. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Max. Thank you for having me. Uh, this has been a really great conversation. I've done a lot of these and, uh, I feel like we covered a, a lot of grounds and we got a lot of good things out there today. We've covered a lot of territory today, and it's left me about as bullish about the possibility of using bots for good instead of for ill as I am bearish about the future of legacy cities like New York. If you're interested in that topic, do be sure to go back two or three episodes and find our episode on de-urbanization with economist Peter Van Doren for a much more in-depth take. As always, until next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.